Lord, we ask you to bless this evening. We ask you to guide, lead us as we look at your word and, and see what you would want us to learn from this section and help us to, to see you in all that's going on. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Job chapter 9, we're going to be starting at verse 1. This is Job's answer to Bildad. Bildad had just got done saying that bad things don't happen to good people and that God would be unjust if bad things happen to good people. Where he came up with that theology, I have no idea, but that was his argument, and this is Job's answer to Bildad. So, Job chapter 9. Starting at verse 1. Then Job answered and said, I know it is so of a truth, but how should a man be just with God? If he will contend with him, he cannot answer him one of a thousand. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who hath hardened himself against him and hath prospered? Which removed the mountains and they know not, which overturns them in his anger who shakes the earth out of her place, and the pillars thereof tremble, which commands the sun, and it rises not, and seals up the stars, which alone spreads out the heavens and treads upon the waves of the sea, which makes Arturus, Orion, and Pleiades, and the chambers of the south, which doth great things past finding out, yea, in wonders without number. Lo, he goes by me, and I see him not. He passes also, and I perceive him not. So I'm going to stop here. There's way too much already to be talking about. <laughs> I haven't even got to the end of the paragraph, but that's okay. So here we've just read, read the start of Job's answer to Bildad. And he says, I know it is so of a truth, but how should man be just with God? So he is agreeing with Bildad that God would, does not do evil to good people. But he says something that's very important for us, and this is something I've said many times, you know, the question for us is not why do bad things happen to good people, but why does good things happen to all of us bad people? And this is what Job has just said here. He goes, I know it is of the truth, and what he's saying is, I agree with you. God would not allow bad things to happen to good people, good people. but he goes... But how should a man be just with God? So he's saying, how can any man, because he understands that man is sinful. Now he's upheld his righteousness, his integrity, because he's been offering sacrifices, he's, he's doing this, but he's also understanding at the same time that we can't claim to be good in, before God. Not without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, anyway. All right? And so he's understanding there is a truth here, that God would be unjust to, to let bad happen to good people, but now he's admitting that probably there aren't any good people anyway. Now, this is kind of falling, flying in the face of his, in his statements up till now. He's been going, I do not deserve anything that's been happening to me because I am a good person. But now he's starting to recognize that, well, I am a sinner. Now he also knows that he's offered his sacrifices but we go back to the first couple chapters and we know that God's testimony of him is that he's a just and perfect man that, is, that hates evil. So we have these contradictory statements coming in. And remember, these aren't contradictions in the Bible. They're just contradictory statements because people are, this is recording what's being said. 
And Job, we had to be very careful in the book of Job that we don't try to make doctrine out of what's said, especially if Bildad, uh, Eliphaz, or, or these other guys are the ones saying it because they don't represent God correctly in anything they say. And Job is struggling. Job struggles with much of what he says because he is struggling with the idea that I'm a good person, I've offered my sacrifices, I hate evil, I'm not doing good, and yet look at all the bad stuff that's happening to me. So he's struggling, but we see him at least coming real close to actual doctrines, even though he's struggling and he, he has this prosperity gospel in mind. He goes, if he will contend with him, he cannot answer him one in a thousand. And this is kind of poetic, but contend here means uh, conduct a case. If I was to stand in, stand in court with God and conduct my case, he goes, I couldn't answer one in a thousand charges. All right? He goes, God could give a thousand charges to me, and I couldn't even answer one of those charges. All right? So this is what he's saying in this statement. Uh, I, if I was to go to court with God, he would have a thousand charges with me, and I couldn't even defend myself against one of them. And I think about how our courts are setting things up anymore. You know, the police now don't charge you with one one crime anymore. They charge you with like nine crimes, hoping one will stick. If you ever get pulled over, last time I got pulled over, which was quite a while back ago, they, they gave me four tickets for one, for one offense. Uh, you know, they just made sure that one of the tickets was going to stand. <laughs> and, and, you, and you listen to them, you know, you listen to news and these people are charged with, you know, five or six ch charges so that, they, that they're hoping that at least one of these crimes will stick. And this is kind of what Job was saying. He goes, if I was standing before God, he'd have a thousand charges against me, and I can't even defend one of them. So he understands that man has sin, and God is right in, in judging us. And this is his answer to Bildad. He goes, you're, you're making good sense, but you know, we have a problem. We're not very good before God. So I like it that he's, he's understanding this. Now, he's, he's still going to stand on the fact that I've offered my sacrifices, the blood, the blood is covering my sins, and all these, all these statements. But you know, he's understanding also that man cannot stand before God because God is just. And so here he's making this said. And now he starts giving the definition of God. And this is kind of an interesting thing as we look at it. His first statement is, He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who hath hardened himself against him and hath prospered? He says, God is wise to start with, and wisdom is applied and skillful, applied knowledge or skillful in knowledge, and he is mighty in strength. And we know these terms as he, God is omniscient and omnipotent. He is all powerful, all, all knowing, uh, and we can't stand up to him. And so he's saying all these things about him, and he says, uh, and who hath hardened, who has strengthened himself up to go face to face with God and been able to win and prosper? Yeah, this is something that Job understood. How many people in our day and age think they're going to win against God because they don't believe in him anyway, and they're willing to try to go toe to toe with God? Now we're gonna we're gonna prove to him that we're we're okay. We're you know we don't need him. Uh, we've got our atheists that are all trying to disprove God, which is kind of interesting that an atheist will try to disprove something that doesn't exist. 
by their, by their logic. It makes no sense that they will try to disprove God when they don't believe, him in, the fir- believe in him in the first place. Uh, you know, so the, the silliness of much of what goes on in our world, and I can picture an agnostic wanting to try to disprove or prove God. I mean, that's because they're in a place where they don't know. You know I don't know if there is a God. There may or may not be. But so I can understand them wanting to try to disprove God, but the atheist should just go, you know, well, you're fools for believing in him, so we're not going to even worry about you. But they spend a lot of time trying to, to disprove. And here Job is saying, who can make themselves strong enough to be able to even prosper against God? And I think this is a good statement for us. Because even we as Christians sometimes want to try to challenge God in various areas of, that he has said don't do or do or don't, you know, and we're going, well, you know, hey, uh, God, you know, you need to kind of listen to us. <laughs> kind of where Job gets to by, by the middle of the book. You know, I just want to stand before God and plead my case. And many times we as Christians will say the same thing. I just want to, I just want to stand before God and plead my case. I want to prove to God that I was right in doing what I want in spite of whatever, the, whatever he says. And Job is saying, <laughs> you're a fool for trying. And this is his answer to Bildad as he's going on. He goes, and this is kind of interesting. I believe that this next couple of verses are prophetic, speaking of the end days, because they sound so much like Daniel speaking of the end days and the revelation. He goes, um, who shall prosper, which has removed mountains, and they know not, which overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of her place, and the pillars thereof tremble. He commands the sun, and it rises not, and he seals up the stars. All right? So I think these are kind of more prophetic. He understands that God, number one, he's saying God has the power to do these things. But these are the things that are going to happen (laughs) during the tribulation period and, and at the end of the millennial kingdom. All right, uh, there, he says that he removes the mountains, and in uh, Revelation 16 we read of the earthquake that the mountains fall flat, the islands disappear, God shakes the earth in a mighty way with an earthquake that is so great that basically everything is flattened out. I can't imagine that kind of an earthquake. I don't want to be around, and I'm glad we won't be around. That is a big earthquake. I've been around some earthquakes. You know, I was in California during the last big one that dropped the Oakland Bridge down, you know, on, it, on itself. You know, so, you know, and the shaking of it. And that's nothing compared to the earthquake that God predicts in Revelation 16. Probably to be returned back to the way it was at creation. There wasn't a lot of large hills in creation it was, by everything we read. Uh, it was a fairly flat world until God broke up everything and, and sent the continents moving and colliding and, and everything. And then we ended up with the mountains being pushed up by the continents being shifted around. So I think he's going to return it back to the way it was because when he reigns from Jerusalem, it's pretty much it, the days of Eden. You know, long life, animals, you can, the lion, li- the, 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 you can sit by the scorpions and the asps and not have been not have to worry about it. The lambs, the lambs don't have to worry about their predators. <laughs> Things will be back the way it almost the way it was, even though death will will occur because there's still sin. And he says the mountains were removed; they know it not. 
which, are overturn which overturned them in his anger. And again, I think this is referring to the tribulation period when this great earthquake is. Now, how Job knows about this period, I don't know. Was God, did God have a prophecy that they know of that we don't know about? Did God prophesy through him at that point? I don't know. But he understands that God is powerful enough to drop the mountains because he understands God's power. And sometimes I think we forget God's power. How powerful is God? You know, that he created the heavens and the earth. He's the one that stretched out the heavens, as he's going to talk about. And he has all this power. And because we don't see it operating all the time, we sometimes forget that how powerful God is. Now, the sad thing was the children of Israel, even though they saw God's power every day for 40 years in the wilderness, still forgot God's power. Even though they saw it every day, he fed them every morning with manna. He gave them water from a rock. He sent quail to them every day. He delivered them from their enemies. They still, they got, in their case, they got so used to his power that they started taking it for granted. We kind of go, well, God, you haven't done a lot of great things in recent years, so we're not, you know, we, we don't, we're not absolutely sure that you can do it sometimes. Even though we're greeted and we go, yes, we know we can, but, you know, when it comes down to the practical, sometimes we forget that God is able to do all these things still. And, you know, so Job is saying this about his power. He goes, he shakes the earth out of her place and the pillars thereof tremble. Now, God has done some great earthquakes, you know, through, through time. Uh, during Hezekiah's day, there's an earthquake that is mentioned, and we haven't been able to found it in history, that was considered the greatest earthquake up to that point in time. It shook and destroyed much of Jerusalem and everywhere else. Uh, when Jesus died on the cross, there was a mighty earthquake in Jerusalem that broke open the tombs, and, we, and, the, and, the, dead and the dead were resurrected, and people saw saw you know, the righteous you know, at that point. We've seen God do mighty earthquakes all through history. Paul in prison in Philippi had the, had the earthquake at midnight when they were praising God and opened the doors of the prison. And so we see earthquakes, we see God's power being able to shake the earth. And here is Job saying, God can shake the earth. There's plenty of earthquakes. God has shown his power over and over in the scriptures. And yet, many times we forget. Because in our day and age, God doesn't seem to be doing as many miracles, as, as many mighty miracles as he's done. Now, he's done lots of miracles. I've seen healings. I've seen, I've seen some great things happen. I've seen people, things happen that should not have happened. Uh, I've seen somebody who's on the heart transplant list get, you know, get totally healed, totally healed and, and miraculously healed. Their doctors could not understand it because he was like number three on the, on the transplant list and he asked for prayer and he got healed. Still has the heart that was healed. <laughs> so we see his mighty works, but it's how easy is it for us to drift back and forget it? Yeah, and, and I've said this so many times, even the scripture, even in the scriptures, is how long was there between most of the miracles? The only ones that I really have trouble with them, with them would be the children of Israel for 40 years being seeing God work in mighty ways every single day. You know, they, they'd had no excuse. Abraham, 
There was long periods of time between each of his miracles. Uh, Joseph, long times of period, you know, periods. Daniel, long time. You know, most of these people had long times between the big miracles of God. So you can understand if they would forget. And yet they didn't forget because it was part of their life. The children of Israel wondering, you know, they had been delivered with ten great miracles to get them out of Egypt. Then they had the Red Sea that God opened up the Red Sea and walked them through, which is a pretty good walk. And he walked them through on dry land. And then he dumped the water on top of the Egyptians so that they would never be bothered by them again. And they would still forget the mighty works of God. And he fed them every morning. He gave them manna. He gave them quail. He gave them water from a rock. A rock that apparently, from what we're told in, in Hebrews, they carried around with them. In the, and everywhere they stopped, the rock produced more water. All of these things that God did, and they forgot God's power. And, and it's very funny because when they come in at the end of the 40 years, if you remember, Rahab told them, we remember what your God did for you in Egypt. And we remember the Red Sea, and we are terrified of you because of this. And they had already forgotten about the power of God. Because I think it was too common to them. And I know this happens even for many of us. We get so used to the blessings of God that we forget that they're blessings. And I think that's where they were at. They were so used to God blessing them every single day that they forgot that they were blessings and, and God's great blessing to them. And I'm going to make up a word. They thought they were normals. <laughs> now, this is the normal way of life. There's men on the ground, and there's quail that fly through the camp. You know, it's the normal way of life. This is nothing special, especially those who had been born in the wilderness. They had never known anything else. So for them, it, this was normal life. God's miracles were normal to them. And so we see this happening sometimes. It can go both directions. We don't see his miracles often enough to remember how powerful he is, or we see too much of his miracles and forget that they're miracles. So here he's going through this. He shakes it. He commands the sun, and it rises not, and he seals up the stars. Again, this is a description of the end days when God says the sun will be darkened, the stars will be darkened. If God created them, he can do what he wants with them. He can, he can darken them with no problem. He can hide their light because he's the one that created the light. So he can do all of this. And then he says, which alone stretched out the heavens and treads upon the waves of the sea. And this whole idea, uh, or, or it says spreads, spreads out, and, and it's to stretch out. God stretched out the heavens. And you know this is something that is becoming a big word to those who believe in creationism, because you know it counters the whole idea of an exploding universe. God just took it like a rubber band and just stretched it out. And technically, he holds it together. He is still holding it out. Because it is very interesting that there's no reason for our universe to stay the way it is. It doesn't make a lot of sense because gravity should pull it back in and all these other things, and God holds it, holds it together. What did Jesus, what did we're told? That Jesus holds all things together. He's holding the universe stretched out. And even beyond that, he holds the very elements and atoms together. I, I always thought it was funny when I was taking science class and they started talking about an, an atom. 
and an atom has a whole bunch of positively charged protons in the nucleus that don't blow apart, with a whole bunch of electrons flying around the proton, proton out, uh, outside that don't collapse to the, to, the, to the interior. And I asked my teacher, how does it work? They go, we don't know. Yeah, and I've asked other scientists and some even smarter than my high school, you know, my elementary and high school teachers the same question, and these professors don't know. Well, they have an answer. It's called nuclear force. Some strange thing that they have no idea what it is, but it's nuclear force holds the protons together in place and keeps the, the electrons flying around it. That's their answer. We don't know what it is. It's, it's you know, nuclear force. And it's like, okay, that is real logical, a real scientific answer. <laughs> all right? But the Bible tells us that God holds all things together. And at the very lowest microscopic level of the atom, all the way to the stretched out the universe and holds it in place. And he holds it all together. And amazingly, we've got Job saying the same thing. That God holds all things. He stretched it out. Now I'm amazed. You know, one of the greatest things about reading the book of Job, we find so much information about science in the book of Job. He understood things that we only recently rediscovered in, in recent years. And it's so fun reading the book of Job. I love reading the book of Job because of those, those very things that, that he brings out. Well, because the, those who want to come against us, well, there's all the stuff you can't understand. Thank you. You made my point. Well, if you can't understand it, then you must not be true. No, 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 no. It just proves to me that I have a, I have a God who is greater than me who has communicated to me in words as best he can about things, I would not have to walk by faith. And there's things that I can't fully understand. And I, you know, simple things like, why did God create man in the first place knowing that we were going to fall? It didn't surprise him when Adam and Eve sinned, you know, and yet he created us. Yeah. Would I have created created mankind if I was God knowing that they were going to fall and that I was going to have to die for their sins? I don't think so. And yet God did all of that knowing that he was going to have to die to buy us back. And he still created us. Seems like a big waste of time to, to do this and God doesn't need anything so why would he create men? Because he didn't need, he didn't need us to worship him or anything. He didn't need us to, so that he would die for us and yet he created us so I have no clue why. No, because boredom would indicate that he needed something. And he doesn't need it, so he, he, didn't, he wasn't because he was bored. It wasn't because he needed worship. It wasn't needed. He didn't need people around because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been in perfect unity for, for all of eternity. All the things that we could think of as why he would even think about doing it make no sense because that would indicate that there's a need, and he has no needs because he's complete. You know, so it's really hard because, uh, believe me, there's times when I've contemplated it, trying to figure it out. I don't spend a lot of time anymore, but there have been times when I've tried to figure out, God, you knew everything. You knew what was going to happen. Why in the world would you have created mankind? Then the plan had already been in place because Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So before he even laid the world, before he created man, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have gotten together. We're going to create man. Man's going to sin. Jesus, will you die for them? Sure. <laughs> that makes no sense, <laughs> you know, to me.
you know, I'm sure it makes some kind of sense to God, but you know, it's just mind-boggling to me that God would do it. Because I looked at it and I'm going, God, did you need worship? No, because then that would mean that you're not complete and you, know, you, weren't, you, weren't, com you weren't whole. You didn't need fellowship because you had perfect fellowship. And it's just mind-boggling and, and rocks the brain <laughs> to think of those things, that God would do this. Yeah, and maybe he'll tell us in, when we're to heaven why he did. I don't know. I, I'm probably not even going to care at that point, but, you know, because we don't know what he's going to tell us when we get to heaven. He's never, he's never going to have to explain himself because he's God. So we don't know. He goes, and he goes, you spread the heavens out and you tread the waves of the sea. So he's saying, God, you, you're in total control. You're in total control. You can walk, you walk on the, way, the, the seas, you spread the heavens out. Then it says, you make Arturus, Orion, and Pleiades, and the chambers of the south. So I'm not sure how good most of you are with your uh, astron astronomy, but here we have three uh, constellations mentioned. Arturus is the Big Dipper. It's an old-fashioned old name for the Big Dipper. All right. Uh, Orion, still Orion. <laughs> The Pleiades, the Pleiades are seven stars, a seven-star cluster that makes up the shoulder of Taurus, the bull. So he's written, and this is how long the constellations have been known. The constellations have always been known. Why? Because who named the stars? God. He made the stars as a sign to the world and each one of these constellations have a story behind them. And one of these days we will do a, a series on the, on the um, uh, constellations and the spiritual story behind them. Uh, be a year or two from now, but we're, we'll, we'll plan on it. Uh, because each one of them have a story. Because uh, I'll take Orion because I know him so well. Outside of Virgo, I know Orion, the, the story behind Orion the best. Because I know that Orion's foot in the, on the, in the star clusters, his foot is over the great serpent's head of the stars. The serpent of the, of the heavens spans most of the, most of the, star, the sky, starry night. And Orion's foot is over the head of that serpent. It is a picture of Jesus who was going to crush the serpent's head. That story has been in the stars forever. You know, and it's very interesting to see that God has placed the gospel message right into the stars. And it's very interesting because the stars start with Virgo the Virgin. And in the second house of Vir Virgo, you have her holding her son and she's still called the Virgin. Just as she would be in real life. And then the stars go around through all the different stars and it ends with Leo, the lion, the king. And so the gospel message is right into the stars. So if you're ever sitting there watching the stars and you know your star clusters, you see the birth of Jesus, the, the Orion getting ready to crush the head of the serpent, the great serpent, all the way around to coming in and being the king of all kings, Leo. And then if you go far enough south, and I don't know how many of you have ever been far enough south, but on the south, we have one very big star cluster deep into the south, in the middle of dark sky, and it's the Southern Cross. You cannot miss it. It is a star, a, a cross in stars, 
and it is in a dark area. There's no other stars around it. It stands out. But God has put his story right into the stars. And so a lot of times when people go, what about all the ancient people who've never heard the story? Well, they've heard the story because this, these stories of the, it doesn't matter where you go, the same constellations are everywhere. They have been since Job's day, and they're still today. Because God put them in there to give his story. And the, the lessons have been kind of ruined over the years because of, of everything, but the stories are still out there about these, about these things. And here's Orion, here's Job saying, he made these constellations and the chambers of the south, the other, the other constellations that he wasn't going to name all the, all the constellations. So Job is saying this is how powerful God is. You know, he has done all of these things and then he goes, if this wasn't enough, he does great things past finding out and wonders without numbers. <laughs> right? if, if it's not great enough that he could shake the whole earth, darken the stars, created the stars, he goes, and, you know, he goes and, he, and he made the constellation, he goes, and he does great things past finding out that we can't figure out. They're impossible for us to follow through with. And we think about what has God done? I love it as we get more and more science and we see more and more of God and we now know that atoms are held together by God. We look out into the, into the, you know, to the deepest parts of space and it's an amazing thing how many stars are out there in, the, in, in, the, in this universe. You know, it's been, a, been forever that they've been counting stars. You know, they used, to, they used to count all the stars they could see and now we're finding out that you know, you put Hubble in this new telescope, probably going to do the same thing. You focus it on some spot, and then you, you put a time-lapsed camera, camera on it and open it up, and all you get is one great big ball of light because there's so many stars out there that it fills the entire thing. And so the scientists are now going, well, you know, there's possibly life out there because look how many you know, solar systems must be out there. Well, you know what? Maybe there is. Maybe God created life someplace else. Maybe he just put it there for us to entertain us. I don't know. It doesn't matter to me if there's life somewhere else. Because God created it if there is. You know, they did not come to this world and plant life on it. You know, uh, directed pansporidium, where they say aliens came to the world and planted life on it so that we could have evolution on this world. Because uh, all they're doing there is saying that evolution happens someplace else where it can't happen. Uh, but, you know, it's very interesting that if God created it someplace else, I have no problem with that. Not a problem with it at all because God could have created it. He's still God there. I don't think we'll ever get contact with them, but it's not a problem. I don't think there is any other life out there, but why? Because God made us in a very special way. We are a very special creation to him. So it's not necessarily out there. And he says, he, and he does wonders without number. He's saying that God does these things and we can't even begin to count them. And I think about that so much. You know, how much goes on in this world that seems to not be able to go on? The very fact that he holds every atom together is a big, big deal. And so he, we've got all of this going on. And he says, lo, he goes by me, and I see him not. He passes on also, and I perceive him not. 
He says, God walks is right here with me, and I do not even know that he is there. Now, this can be almost kind of scary when you think about it. You know, he's, that he's standing there, but you know, what is he really saying? God is everywhere, and I'm not really recognizing him. God, even in our day, is everywhere. He is with us because he is in us, but he is also everywhere. And this is something that is very, you know, David says, you know, if I even make my bed in hell, God, you're there. And so we want to keep this in, in, in mindset that God is omnipresent. You know, we see here, he's starting to talk about the attributes of God. You know, he is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he is omnipresent. You know, and the developing of his theology is very strong. And this is one of the things people will look at Job and go, this theology is too well developed to be back for, you know, uh, 2,500 years before Jesus Christ. He goes, they just know too much theology. Well, theology did not start with man. Theology started with God, and I believe God gave Adam and Eve the theology, and he gave, and that went to, to Noah, and God had strengthened it to them, and it has been going on since, because the theology basically is the same all the way across the world, even though it's been, you know, uh, ruined over time, the baseline theology is always the same. There is good and evil. They need God to be able to support. Sacrificial systems are all over the, all over the world. Uh, not as much now as they used to be, but they're still out there. The theology is the same, and God put it into giving it to man. It's not man-made. Theology ultimately is God giving his information about himself to man. And Job knew more, more theology than, we, than anybody wants to give him credit for. And because our sociologists and everything, or even some theologians say, well, there's no way he could have those well-developed theologies because he lived so long ago and we know that people were stupid back then. Now, I don't know how, how they ever come up with the idea that they were stupid because they were very smart. They, they knew how to do all kinds of scientific things. The Egyptians moved huge bricks that we can't even move hardly with our, with our equipment. <laughs> You know, and all these things that happened, they, you know, the Egyptians had all kinds of advanced uh, activities going on. They were not dumb people. Uh, and this is something we've talked about. Our scientists have gone, well, we're so smart, they had to be dumb back then. Unfortunately, I think they were much smarter than we were long ago because they probably used more of their brains closer, closer to uh, creation. And they knew what was going on and their theology was solid because God taught Adam and Eve. And can you think about this? God met with Adam and Eve in the cool of the night every night for a while. And we don't know how long they were in Eden. I don't think it was very long personally because it wasn't long enough to have any kids because that would really give us theological problems if they had had kids while they were perfect. And their kids then would have been perfect and that would have given us all kinds of problems. <laughs> Theological. I don't even want to think about the theological problems that would include. So I don't think they were there in Eden for very long, but God met with them every night and taught them. And I, can you imagine what it would be like to be taught directly by God in person every night, you know, answering your questions, giving you information every night? That would have been so wonderful. Now, we get, we get it through his word, 
But you know, we could they could have been able to ask, well, explain that. We don't quite understand what you've said. You know, and being able to get direct information. They knew that when they sinned that that blood sacrifice was what they needed to do and taught it to their kids because we see Cain and Abel already offering sacrifices in their, in their adult years. So we know that they understood when God shed that blood that that was a symbol of forgiveness of sin. How they knew that? I'm sure God told them. How they knew the constellations of the world, of the, of the clouds, God told them. And then that was passed on through their generations. How did they know much of the science that Job uh, talks about? I think God told them. God taught them about fire. He taught them about all kinds of things. You know, so this is what we, we see from this is the, this power that, he, that he's giving them. Verse 12, Behold, he takes away who can hinder him. Who will say to him, What do you? If God will not withdraw his anger, the proud helpers do stoop under him. How much less shall I answer him and choose out my words to reason with him? Whom though I were righteous, yet I would not answer, but I would, not, I would make supplication to my judge. If, he had call, if I had called and he had answered me, yet would I not believe that he had hearkened unto my voice. For he breaks me with, the, with a temp, tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not suffer me to take my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If I speak of strength, lo, he is strong, and of judgment, who shall set me a, a time to plead? If I justify myself, my own mouth will condemn me. If I say I am perfect, it shall also prove me perverse. Okay. So here he's starting to, to really go into his, his case with, against Bildad. You know, he's, Bildad's saying bad things don't happen to good people, and he's going to go, Bildad, you don't even understand. You don't understand is basically what he's telling him. Uh, Behold, he takes away, and who can hinder him? Who can say to him, what do you? This sounds very familiar to what he told his wife when she said, you know, curse God and die. He goes, shall we accept good from God and not evil? He goes, if God takes things away, number one, we can't stop him. And number two, we don't even have the right to ask him, what are you doing? Why? He understood that God was sovereign. God is the maker. He can do what he wants. Now, it doesn't soften the blow at all to, to, to Job. He's still suffering with this. He still doesn't understand why God would do all this to him. But he's, he's understanding, you know, he's, he's like we are when, that thing, when things don't seem to be going the way we expect them. We'll go, okay, God, I understand, but I don't understand. And this is where Job's at right now. God, I understand that you're sovereign. I understand you can take away if you want. And none of us has the right to be able to say, what are you doing? Even though he has been complaining that God has, God has you know, done it and toward the end of the book, by the time he's been hammered by his wonderful friends telling him that God is unjust and you, you, know, you must have done something bad and then he's going to get to where he wants to justify himself, at least at the start he understands you take what God gives you. And that was his original stance. Uh, God can do what he wants. And nobody can say to him, what are you doing? And this is something we all need to understand. You know, when, when God is not doing what we think he should be doing, for us, we cannot be going, God, what are you doing? Because he is the potter, we're the clay, as it says in Jeremiah. 
Here, here's the understanding from Job that, you know, God, you can do what you want. You're in, you're in charge. He goes, be, uh, and if God will not withdraw his anger, the proud helpers do stoop underneath him. So this is kind of an interesting statement. He goes, the proud cannot stand if God's anger stands against them because they will be crushed. And this is kind of an interesting statement. He understands that God, if his anger comes against you, nobody's going to stand. And again, you, think, you see the theology that, under, that uh, Job understands through all of this. And at this point, I'm sure he's thinking, well, I wasn't proud, but I'm, I'm not able to stand. I'm not even able to stand, and I didn't start out proud, and I can't stand. What would happen if God put his full anger on somebody? And, you know, our world does not understand that, and they won't understand it until the tribulation period when God pours his wrath on this, on this world, and even then they won't accept it. What happened when Pharaoh had God's wrath poured upon his people? He hardened his heart and still wouldn't let him go. The people, his, his leaders and his people were going, get rid of these people or there won't be an Egypt to, to have anymore. They're going, you need to get rid of these people. Their, their God is destroying us. And he hardened his heart. And literally, Egypt was practically destroyed when Egypt was taken out. And there was a dynasty change during that period of time. They'd lost their army. They lost their economy. Everything happened and there was a huge dynasty change at that point of Exodus because they had no army. They had no economy. Verse 14, how much less shall I answer him and choose my words to reason with him? So this is kind of an interesting statement. He goes, all right, God, if he didn't, if he didn't hold back his anger, nothing could stand against him. The monster of the sea, the proud helpers, whatever, whatever, you know, strong things can't stand up against his anger. He goes, and much less, how should I answer him? And how should I choose my words to reason with him? The all-knowing God, who would already know my words and the argument that I was going to make with him anyway, how can I argue with God? How could I choose my words? And if you've ever planned for a debate, I don't know if anybody's ever done that. You plan for a debate and you're trying to figure out what are the right words that I should use for this, this time. And I've shared with you many times, I grew up in a family where I was constantly being asked, did you use the word that you meant to use? Did you use the right word? And this is what Job is saying. No matter what I plan to say, I don't know that I can say the right words, the correct words to be able to reason with God. And I find it so funny because how often do I see things that just really make me laugh when I see them? At the prison, there's a, there's a sign on several of the doors for a particular department and it says, this door is to remain unlocked uh, unless occupied. And I look at that, I'm going, okay, so if nobody's in the room, I can't enter the room. Because that's what it says. It is to remain locked if unoccupied, unless occupied. So if nobody's in there, I can't get into the room. If I followed their full, their instruction. Now I know what they meant. You know, uh, this room is always to stay locked unless somebody is in there. Uh, but that's not what it says. <laughs> 
Yeah, and how many times do people make, and we, we see them all the time on the internet, you know, these little statements that if you take them literally, do not make any sense. Uh, driving down the road and you see slow children at play. Okay, I've not seen too many children playing slowly in my lifetime. Now I know that that's not what that sign says, but that is what that sign says, or, or means, but that is what that sign says. <laughs> but Job here is saying, how can I choose my words to argue with somebody who knows everything and is smarter than I am? And if you've, again, if you've ever been in a debate, you're going, what can I say that they're not going to be able to answer? That's <laughs> what he's saying. I can't do it. And so he's... He's going to, right now, at the beginning of the book, he's being very smart. I can't argue with God. I can't ask him why. But as he's getting hammered by his friends on all these things, it's, you know, toward you know, 30 or so, he's starting to say, God, I just want a chance to talk with you. I want to plead my case. He's totally off of where he starts. But it is really a good point of we need to choose who we hang around with carefully because... How many times do you have the right attitude and then somebody convinces you that you need to defend yourself? I'm going to let God be my defender and then they hammer on you and hammer on you and hammer on you how you can't let them get away with this. You can't let that happen. You can't do this. You need to, you need to defend yourself. And it's like, okay. And then you stir up the pot and make things worse. We need to be very careful on who we listen to for counsel. Now, Job didn't have much choice. These three friends just showed up. And if you remember, they, they were very smart the first time. They spent a week just looking at him and crying with him. And then Job made the, prob the, the problem. He started speaking. And he started complaining a little bit. And then they decided to advise him without knowing what they were talking about. And they spoke in very interesting things like God doesn't let bad things happen and you know good things don't, bad things don't happen to good people and as Job is hammered over and over again he starts getting a little less sure of himself and if you've ever been in that place where you've listened to somebody you know hammer on you and hammer on you it gets sometimes difficult to continue to believe what you know is true and been there done that at times especially when somebody that I used as my disciple or went crazy on a couple of topics and they would give me these really stupid answers and it's like, all right, you're no longer my main topic of uh, advising because you're not, <laughs> you're not accurate. And I was able to back off, but you know, it, it could have been hammered down, you know, saying, you know, something's wrong with the way I'm thinking because this person is telling me I'm wrong. Job's three friends are telling him he's wrong. Why? Because they thought they knew something. And as we saw at the beginning of this, Job agrees with them. He understands. He's, most people believe that these are guys that Job had taught because they're about a half generation back from him, they, that they were ones that he had taught. And they're coming back, and one of the worst things you can do is have your words thrown back at you when God is trying to teach you something. And... You know, when God is trying to teach you that you're not quite fully there with your doctrines and then people that you've taught or instructed come back and repeat back the words that you were taught them and you're going, I don't understand. I'm, I'm trying to hold on to this. <laughs> you know, I know that what you're saying is what I believe. 
And all of us have probably had God challenge us, do you really believe what you believe? Or do you believe correctly? I've had more than one time where God has come into my life and said, uh, I want to fine tune what you think you believe and correct my theology. And, you know, walked with him for, you know, over 50 years now, and he's corrected my theology on more than one occasion. You know, you, you're right in this area, but you don't fully understand. And I'm going to help you more fully understand. And we have to be ready to say, okay, God. Now, that, having said that, we also have to be careful that we don't throw away what we know just because it doesn't seem to match where we're at. You know, and we have to kind of walk a very fine line. Is what I believe correct or not correct? And then is God trying to teach me a deeper understanding? And this is what I've said. God has taught me so much. My, my understanding of God's omnipresence has just exploded in recent years. I used to think only in the fact that God was everywhere present. Now I understand that he fills the third third dimension like we understand. He also fills the fourth dimension and however many other dimensions there are, he fills all of those at the same time. Which is kind of irrelevant because after the fourth dimension, time is, time is irrelevant and doesn't exist. So, but he still fills everything else out there beyond that. You know, how powerful is God? How big is God? No matter how big we think he is, no matter how powerful we think he is, we're too small. Because we're finite beings and we cannot understand infinity. Trying to talk about infinity when I was in school was so interesting. They go, what's the biggest number that you can think of? All right, raise that number by that power of that number. And now you're not even still close to infinity. Because it still goes beyond that. That is where our God is. He's infinite in every one of his attributes. And we are finite, and we can't even begin to understand the, the largeness of God, the power of God, the understanding of God, the knowledge of God, nothing. You know, because whatever we think of, we think of limits. Because we cannot comprehend infinity. And God is infinite in every one of his attributes. His love is infinite. That is hard to imagine in and of itself. His mercy is infinite. Now, there will come a time when he says, okay, we're going to go to the white throne judgment and we're going to give everybody what they want. But even when he's at the white throne judgment, dispensing judgment and giving the people what they wanted, his love is still going to be there. And even when he sends them to hell, which is what they want, he's still going to love them. I can't fathom that. And he's going to love them for eternity while they're suffering in hell, which is going to be, I can't even imagine that because I'd be heartbroken if I was trying to do that, and yet he's going to love them even though he gave them what they desired. Because he will love them for all of eternity. He never will not love them because he created them. And we can't even comprehend what that would be like. We would think, we would think it would be bad, but he is immutable. He does not change. He loves them enough to die for them, and even when he gives them what they asked for, he will still love them. You know, and I can't imagine loving somebody that much who is in hell because they rejected me and still loving them and not being totally torn apart by it. 
But that is because of who we are with our sin nature and our finite understanding of things. You know, but this reason I bring that up is because we can't fully fathom what God is when, we, when he is infinite in all of his attributes. And all of his attributes cross over and mix up back and forth. He is immutable, which means he doesn't change. So when he says he loves somebody, his love will never change because he does not change. That's hard to even fathom. That he's going to love these people even for the eternity that they're spending in hell. But he cannot, because of his righteousness, take them out of hell because that's what they chose. Now, once they get to hell, they're going to really believe in God and want out. They'd be willing to do anything to get out, but it's too late because he says, my righteousness says this is where you're going to be even though I love you. And we can't even begin to fathom how that will work. But we really want to understand that God does not change. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. And even worse than that, he already knows who's going to hell before they were even created. He knew who was going to hell before he created the world, which is hard to believe. And, you know, and he still created them. This is, this is why it's hard for us to understand all of that principle. All right, we're going to end here. Lord, we ask you to bless this. Lord, help us to fully appreciate how great you are and how awesome and more powerful that you are. Job understood this, at least at the beginning, and, even, but, and he struggled over the time of being questioned by his friends. And we just ask you to help us learn to hold fast what we know and keep seeking you in all that happens. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5, 8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us, so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9-8 says, That if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know Him. Do you know Him? Do you want to know Him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of of his family. We encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 
8631.